0: Kia ora, and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Mika and I'm a student at Victoria University studying law, history and political science. I'm here with my co-host Matthew, a Christian chaplain at Victoria University. On this podcast we chat to academics, activists, pastors and public figures about their lives, areas of expertise and what brings them hope. Today we're talking to Bronwyn Wood.
1: Bronwyn is a senior lecturer in the School of Education here at Teheringawaka background is in social science education and she's involved in developing the new social sciences curriculum. Ronald is here to talk about trends in the education system, both in schools and universities, the challenges we face and where she sees hope for the future of education on Aotearoa. lovely to have you on the show, Bronwyn. A focus of your research I understand, has been can education create active citizens? Mm-hmm. Can it? So
2: this is obviously why we need a lot of research, but um, yes, there's actually quite clear evidence that within the context of the broader context of education and the context of the classroom and the relationships built with the teachers and the students, young people can actually have a chance of involvement as young citizens themselves, and this takes multiple forms. But we do actually know the good research evidence that's longitudinal that suggests that experiences at school have a big impact right through to the role of citizens in society. We have a, some 30-year research projects that go back to very active citizens now and say, what did you do in school that you felt make a difference? And surprisingly, it was, maybe unsurprisingly, classrooms where there was open discussion about contemporary critical issues that are real issues. There was exposure to role models of people that come in and have made a difference. That is apparently very profound an openness in the classroom for multiple views to be heard, that they weren't just dominated by one lens or line, and the opportunity to actively participate themselves while they were young. So these criteria have been proven in both a, a case study I can name in England and one in America. 30 years later, you have more active citizen. So they're quite simple things, but surprisingly difficult to enact in a school because of the deep hierarchies that sit within schools of power and of institution and of compliance and normativity. So, but teachers, I I know, can do this.
1: And am I right in thinking that has been the focus of a lot of your research?
2: Yeah, so I've done it in the name of social studies education mainly, but what I argue is that social studies is the main vehicle for citizenship education in New Zealand because we don't have a named citizenship education curriculum so largely what social hopes to achieve is to create active and informed citizens and in that way we are the main vehicle not the only one but the main vehicle in New Zealand schooling to prepare students both at the moment and in the future to be citizens.
1: And do you see that that is happening well in some schools and not in others or how is it happening at the moment?
2: Yeah so the main problem is that it's really patchy so what we have is uh, a very, very loose curriculum. So um, New Zealand is one of the most loose in the world of not naming prescribed knowledge. And we do it in the name of autonomy. It's under a neoliberal Tomorrow Schools programme, which happened from 1989, that schools were then given autonomy in how they both put together their curriculum and how they govern themselves through their board of trustees. So this was quite experimental at a international scale when New Zealand did this. Other countries do it, like Finland is this to some extent, Israel to some extent. But New Zealand went to quite an extreme of complete, almost no central governance at all happening across schools. The only thing they had was a stick, which was the Education Review Office, Aero, to come in and tell schools off if they weren't performing in some way. So we still have that system. It's a slightly kinder system than when it started off in the 90s. So what that means with a curriculum that then became uncentralized as well and very, very open, was what we call the local curriculum and a very conceptual curriculum that had almost no prescribed knowledge anyway, is that we get these huge discrepancies happening between schools. And by and large, the higher decile schools from the wealthy communities are managing just fine with that open curriculum and they recruit teachers that have strong curriculum knowledge and enact a strong program. In the lower Socio-economic communities, what often happens is that you get weaker teaching staff, whatever reason, you have more challenges within the students, you can end up, but even within the high decile, you can end up with a really eclectic mix of what is taught. And it's very odd, if you go around the world, to say this, we don't know what students have been taught by the time they leave school because of that openness. So that's where the history came, the new histories, Aotearoa histories came in, because people said it's just not good enough the students said it initially with their petition to parliament and then the history teachers said it's just not good enough to not even name the knowledge which matters for students and the government then agreed and i think in 2019 said yes they would pursue this and put in place a history curriculum so the same goes for citizenship education that what we can have teachers do this very very well but we can also schools with students wouldn't have any exposure to information about systems of government, how you vote, political literacy, the kind of thing we would expect everyone to know because it's not prescribed. There's, I don't know, one achievement standard that says study systems of government, but they might have done six weeks on Nazi Germany and not ever know what happened in New Zealand. So it's that kind of eclectic variation that means we've got a system which you just don't know what's going on. So the new Quick and Refresh is trying to deal with that, but we now have let loose for almost 30 years a very neoliberal idea that you do whatever you want and no one can tell you what to do. So teachers react a lot with the word compulsory and they act, they don't like being told what to do. After this 30 years of being told, you can create your own way and do it your way. So we have a big issue the cat's let out of the bag for 30 years of that autonomy and to pull it back in is very, very difficult now.
0: On a level in the classroom, on that sort of more individual small-scale level, what have you seen be some really effective ways of building active citizens and getting engagement? And what are some barriers to that for, like, teachers and then also for students, I guess?
2: One of my biggest projects in recent time has been looking at an NCEA social studies achievement standard called personal social action. And what it asks quite unusually is to ask students to take personal social action about an issue that matters to them. And so I went into five different schools with a team and looked at what they were doing and what was working well and what wasn't working well. So a couple of the big themes I talked about earlier are very key here. So at the very outset, you needed a classroom where kids felt valued. And that they belong. So if you have high levels of just unstated discrimination happening in schools or kids not feeling that they belong in there, there's no way you can start anywhere near active citizenship education, which requires at the outset to say you're valued, your views are valued, your voice is valued, and we need to hear from you you know, as a young person. So that kind of is a, a bottom level of what we would need, a kind of open classroom climate where the teacher acknowledges and values young people. And at the level of the school, then this can become very difficult because some schools are not good at giving space for young people to have an opinion and to be heard and to act on their views and so on. So we have whole schools restricting or opening up young people's potential to participate. So that was at the level of the classroom. But then within the teaching, you also then have an opportunity to make a difference. And so We know there are strategies which work better than others for inviting young people to be involved. And so in particular, this NCA, personal social action, which requires young people to identify an issue and then probably do some research and then take some action on it. Once that got written into an assessment that was recognised at national level, it really started to be a game changer. Because what used to happen is in junior social studies, you would have something called social action. But Most teachers ignored it because it actually takes a lot of time. I just had an email from a teacher this week who said she's doing the the students in the middle of their social action programs across three levels, year 11, 12, 13. And she's exhausted because she has to... So these group want to talk to the city council. This group want to go down to a local stream. This group want to... You know, so it's quite active. And so for teachers, it takes more time. I have a, a teacher I've worked with for probably eight or 10 years now, Up the coast a bit, and she works very closely with the local library. So they use the library to make information boards to tell the public. Maybe it's about trafficking or landmines or whatever's the issue. And they'd go down and set up display boards at the library, and then often as people walk by, they would do a survey with them. So this is this is all part of social action and being involved in society. But to get them to the library, they're not allowed to leave the school site without filling in what we call RAMS forms, which is all to do with safety and health. And they, they're this big, and the kids just need to pop to the library back, which is walking distance. So she has a way of, they all know how to avoid the cameras as you leave the campus, at uh, the school, and there's a back way that she just says, just go, just go, I'll cover for you. <laughs> and so it's that amount of active participation of teachers that often is needed because of the rigmarole that you go through schools to get the kids off campus and the expense and all of that so anyway there's really good stuff happening in a small number of schools that really really are passionate about this and those school those students I meet them they come and meet me at university and tell me about the projects they've done and they've met mps and they've engaged you know at high level but they'd probably be the exception rather than the norm
0: How long has this particular assignment of personal social action been around? So from level one, 2011, level
2: three, 2013, it's been in place since then, but 20,000 students a year would do it rather than large, large, large numbers. So 20,000, maybe at one level, I'm not quite sure of my stats on that one, but it's certainly not accessible to all. But when I present on that to international conferences, they're staggered because actually it's further than we go at university with students out in the community and trusting them and giving them freedom and stuff like that so it was very exciting research because it, the kids said it was probably one of the best things they did at school because they had to engage with real people they made mistakes you know encountering people they might not have got it right that kind of thing and that's the deep learning of risk taking which we want all students to have where you you're not kind of in a little bubble protected, but you actually step out and sometimes make mistakes. The assessment is a reflection on that rather than having to be successful. And that's also a very, very positive form of assessment that they could completely and utterly fail, reflect on that, learn from another time and say what they do differently. It has been very successful. I have to say it's been changed to an external in the current NCA review. And I've sat on that group and argued tooth and nail that it should not be an external and I lost the battle.
0: That's gutting. Because I'm just a couple of years out of the school system. But mm. I never did this assignment. And it sounds like the sort of thing that I would I would have loved to do. Exactly. Like, that sort of engagement sounds yeah. awesome right up my alley, but I didn't get that shot. Mm. But we did do Nazi Germany. <laughs> and and Star Wars, actually. Nazi Germany and the government, the Galactic Republic. That's what we did. In You're studies. joking.
2: The Galactic Republic. <laughs>
0: It sounds a little bit like
1: my nieces went through Montessori for a few oh, years yes. mm. and there was a big emphasis on going out with the community mm. and and completing projects sort of on your own in just that sort of way.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's fabulous learning. Seriously, it's just one of the best. And students told me that. I did 92 interviews with students in focus groups about their reflection. There was only one little group of 14 that had a teacher that didn't know what she was doing and therefore they were muddled too. And that. She was a little bit of a learning curve because if the teacher's not into it and feeling confident, then the students suffer. She didn't know what was going on at all. And so she didn't let the kids do stuff. But otherwise, apart from that 14 out of the 92, it was like, nah, we learned this and I've got this skill now and I know how to do this. And so it was very, very positive. Even if they failed, it was positive because they learned. Social studies doesn't have a great name in school. So often at senior level, students will then not do social studies. They'll do. History, geography, economics, but schools like even you know, like Wellington Girls or Westlake Girls or Naelan College was doing it down in Nelson, have it in place and they sometimes call it sociology, and it seems to me like it's got a lot of good stuff happening to prepare kids for big issues of society for future and current citizenship and for transition through to multiple multiple subjects at university that would just thrive on this type of learning.
1: There's an interesting theme I'm hearing, or. Tension, maybe, about autonomy, too much autonomy in some zones and not enough in others?
2: Well, I have the research for this one. So, what I realised was going on is a trade off between engagement and knowledge during these social action projects. So, what happens is that we had a model, say, there's a continuum at one end, a highly structured teacher led model, at the other end, a very loose student led model. And I had, and across the five schools, I had both happening the majority at the student led, One highly structured teacher who I rate as one of the best teachers in New Zealand and a very low decile school. And she, what she would do is choose one project, say it was the refugee, increasing the number of refugees to New Zealand. It happened about 2018. So I was in the school in 2018. And so she gave this to the students. This is your social issue this year. Um, you can all do social action around the issue of refugees, anything you want, but this is your issue. And she then taught it she gave them heaps of knowledge. Why should we have more refugees? Why should New Zealand take this responsibility at a global level? When we interviewed the Kits, there was a couple that said, actually, we didn't like being given that issue. We wanted to do another issue. So we were less engaged, but we actually have quite high knowledge. So there's a kind of thing going on between a low engagement, but high knowledge. And at the other end, flip that, the students did mad projects on, um, we're saving the whales. We're We're fighting for beards at school. We're going to petition the board so that every single student has to do a budgeting course. So it's like, okay, these are quite mad projects, and they're very different scales from the school through to Save the Whales, and they weren't necessarily well-informed, and nor were they doing what I'd call something like, you know, let boys have beards. If you study that for six weeks, there's a reasonably thin amount of of things to (laughs) draw on. Yeah. And the teacher just kind of let, let a thousand flowers bloom. They can do whatever they want. And the teacher would like, I'm not, I'm not going to interfere. It's the kids' project. So when we interviewed them, high engagement. Yeah, we're really into getting beards, but low knowledge. So can you see those? You can see that happening. So what we argued is for something in the middle where the teacher has their hands on the project at all times, suggests really rich context for learning, critiques, poor ones, supplements with resources enriches the learning and at no time do you take your hands off because otherwise it's a pretty weak project of social action and of knowledge so i haven't ever written up that data but that's quite important because some of my critique of the student-led learning has come from that experience realizing hey they were engaged but they actually didn't know what they were doing at all and the kids who are studying the whales i think it was maui's dolphin and they said to us we realize after eight weeks there was nothing we had to contribute to the space because there's all these activist groups already doing it. And until we had that knowledge, we didn't even know what social action we should be taking. And they hadn't done anything significant, they made like a poster. So they needed actually much richer knowledge to go into that. So yes, there is a tension of student autonomy. And quite surprisingly, you would think that I'd be all into it. But actually, it needs to be moderated with really rich teaching that actually is has deep knowledge embedded in it and not just agency for the sake of it. We'll come back to Paulo Freire, but there's this idea called praxis. Have you heard of praxis?
1: I've heard of it. I don't know what it is.
2: So this goes back to our liberation theology and the the idea that actually what we need is both critical reflection and action. And the two together is what we call praxis, where you have a depth of knowledge plus an ability to act. And that word praxis has been picked up by multiple theorists and activists because actually in the absence of that deep reflection, you get pretty weak action. And so the quote goes, you know, reflection without action is dead. Action without reflection is just meaningless. So we need both and and not, not just kids marching off bravely into the future, but, you know, completely barking mad projects.
1: I was also wondering about autonomy sort of at the next layer up of you Mm. you said that we've got too much autonomy at the school level for what schools choose or teachers Mm. choose to teach. Mm. Generally, I feel in society, autonomy is seen as a good thing Mm. and it's hard to wind it back once it's been given. What's the alternative to autonomy at that level?
2: It's got good rhetoric. And so most people would naturally say, yes, student-led learning is all good. Uh, But then you need a second take on what that looks like and why. So What I would say is that no one is really autonomous. No person is an island. They are in deep relationship with others. And those relationships aren't bad or aren't negative, but they're good. So one of the critiques of the student-led learning is that there's something that we call heart's ladder, and it starts off at the very bottom with just involving children and students at the level of tokenism and then goes up to maybe consulting them and then maybe informing them and then asking for their opinions and then giving them some agency to act for themselves and right at the top of the rung in heart's ladder is one that says adults and young people work together for change and my students look at it and say he's got it wrong it should be students at the top not adults and young people together at the top so for years maybe 15 years i've opened this up in the conversation in the in the lecture and said what should be at the top of that rung should it be the students marching out by themselves? Where actually does the greatest potential for change happen? And it's actually in relationship with each other, in my mind, having observed this for 15 years. And like that teacher who said to the kids, yeah, sneak out the back, no cameras can see you, I'll cover you. That increases agency instead of reducing agency because they're working together. And so we have a theorist called Fielding who talks about radical collegiality between adults and young people, between teachers and students, and that is really the maximum potential for change in a school, in society. We don't need to carve off young people as autonomous agents against adults like the media often do, but actually when they work together, there's something pretty powerful happening. I don't know if I answered your question about autonomy, but I don't think autonomy is to be sought, sought after in and of itself. And at the moment, that autonomy is playing into the digital space and that isolation that really we live in relationship with others and we need to be that as humans and not that, that autonomous, isolated individual in front of a screen.
0: How do you see the use of digital technology increasing, recent, I guess, in recent mm-hmm. times? How do you see that changing, like the way people learn? And sort of school environments in general.
2: I am very concerned about this. And I'm reading currently Johan Hari's book called Stolen Focus, which is about digital distraction. It confirms everything i have always worried about, but people would say he's in an extreme. But nonetheless, his deep, deep concern is that as a society, we have become so distracted by the device that we have and the notifications and the constant pulling back that we have even forgotten how to think deeply and how to be deeply, how to be ourselves. So he put himself on an island kind of for three months and cut off all his digital devices. And then he finally he started to think and to read deeply and to get to the end of books instead of having 15 that you've half read and that kind of thing beside you read. Anyway, so it's quite a fun book to look at. So digital technology has grown hugely in the classroom and particularly post covid the digital technologies now are almost inseparable from most of our classrooms now. But there's a couple of things that I'd note that are happening in the course of this. So the first one is about relationships. And what I've noticed, and there's empirical data for this, is that the digital device between a student and a teacher acts like, a, like you're linking through a screen. So have you used Google Classrooms? Would you know, like Google Docs and yes. all that kind of thing that teachers yeah. do all the yeah. time. So most schools in New Zealand, I think, I don't know, it's at 74% or something of all New Zealand schools, probably higher, are now Google schools. Quite interestingly, they're given the software for free and it looks like Word, but it's a bit clunkier. And the advantage is that the student puts, has a Word doc and the teacher can come in, not physically, but digitally and observe what the students say. And they give some feedback or something like that. Students interviewed this was quite a few years ago, but I don't think it's changed, is we, we've we lost a relationality and feedback when that happens. This is a direct quote from a student at a local Wellington school who said, so yeah, my teacher comes in and gives me a comment on my Google Doc. I want her to say it to my face and I want to get some uffy, some love around it because I don't get that on the Google Doc and no one else knows what I've done. Whereas often in the past, we used to present our work to the class. Now it's just through the screen and the the teacher's way over there and I'm up here and there's a screen in the way. So that's a piece of Wellington research that the kids were talking like that about what difference it was making to their feeling of connection with the teacher and also the ability to hear the feedback because it's very distant by sometimes we you just get futile words like that. The biggest stuff that's happening, and I just read a thesis on digital distraction, is this really second really big issue of the decline in the ability to think. So this is quite serious for society, but I do think it's quite real and confirmed with this book I'm reading, where the entire role of the digital devices and particularly the social media apps, more than anything else, is to pull people in so that they never want to leave. So you get even the idea of having a bing, you've got a notification, all of that is inherently designed to keep you going back. The likes, the ability to comment in so that you you, you just have to keep checking. So the thesis I read talked about how. In the course of one lesson, a teacher sitting, the researcher sitting back of the classroom watched students as many as 20 times. They had their phones down, face down. You know, this kind of check, check, check of, what, of how many notifications they'd got in that time. And the argument went that if you ask them to put that in their bag, they'll experience such terrible FOMO that they won't be able to concentrate anyway. So what happens is we know cognitively that if you have that ping, if you open the phone, engage with that, it is almost 20 minutes of distraction before you get back to where you were on that. Bit of thinking that you were doing because of that and so there's this kind of like weakening of the ability to think deeply by those pings by those constant notifications that keep you there and the schools are, are just struggling so much with this because the kids demand the use of those phones and they just can't break that to get them thinking deeply so a couple of schools have gone non-phone completely but they're very brave schools and they've had to work that with the parents and the, the norm is then not one phone in the classroom But otherwise every single classroom I'm in, those phones are the biggest distraction going on in the learning. The same as if you have the screen up here. So the students are facing me and typing the notes. They're not typing the notes, they're checking Facebook. They're buying something on Trade Me, they're checking the weather. Is it like they're cheeky enough now to even in the middle of a lecture say, Did you realize there's been a small cyclone, you know, in Gisborne or something? And it's like (laughs) obviously nowhere near my lecture. Thanks for that. So that's that distraction so that you can't think deeply. So first one relationality, second one a cognitive decline or distractibility. And then I think the third one is the digital divide. So the digital divide is very real that there are still people that have I know this because I go into schools, less than seventy percent of a community would still have Wi-Fi or digital device at home. So what has happened over COVID is that where we have already inherently within schools and between schools, a gap between those with good access to digital stuff and poor access, that that has grown incrementally over COVID with whole countries left behind because the kids in Africa and Bangladesh had no access to any digital device at home, so no learning happened at all. And in New Zealand, so I would know a school right now that cannot send any digital required work home at all. And in the school, there might be one Chromebook between three when it comes into the class. So there might be 15 Chromebooks in a class of 30 or something like that, and then half of them aren't working. So that's very real. And what I don't mind about that is that the digital stuff isn't helping as much as people think. But at the same time, as a form of communication, if it becomes increasingly relied on, the gap only grows because the expectation is that that it will be there for kids to use. But yeah, so this school I know, they drove around every single kid and dropped off worksheets every week during COVID, written, printed worksheets, because there was absolutely no way to even email the kids.
1: Wow. Yeah,
2: that's not far away from here.
1: Thinking okay. think even my, my wife teaches at a decile 10 school, and she has noticed they have a bring your own device policy, and mm. some young people will bring a MacBook Air, mm. and another yeah. child, young person might bring a crack screen, little Android mm. tablet or a phone or whatever, and yeah. both be attempting the same work. Exactly. And some
2: trying to type onto these little tiny, even their cell phones. Yeah. Yeah. So cell phone would be the resort of many. Mm. So that sits within a class in a wealthy school and you multiply that across the country and the expectation that they all have devices is just high in the sky.
1: So would you, in your ideal world, would you do it more like, I guess, the schooling I had, where we had a computer class Mm. that certain computery stuff happened on, but the rest of the time it was paper and pen?
2: Yeah, well... There's whole nations that do this, like France. You don't get beyond a pencil till you're 12. You're still in pencil right up till then. And no digital. The whole nation just decided this is just stupid. So during COVID, they were struggling a bit, but the teachers just wrote worksheets and got them around and that kind of thing. And I know Steiner does that, but then... What I also know is when the kids are allowed devices, they have no policies and control of them, so they're as bad as all the others once they get them, even though they didn't know how to double-click because they'd been so restricted. So, yeah, I mean, you, you still have to have constant
1: things in place there. Do you know what the results have been like in France?
2: I think pretty steady. They're not having the declines in literacy numeracy that we have right now. I haven't looked post-COVID. I wouldn't know.
1: So your ideal world, like, would we go uh, yeah. back to
2: Yeah, no. just take
1: a lot of the digital stuff out or is there some other model or...?
2: So I think the harder model is to use digital where it's useful and where it can do something for us. And I think that's a lot less than what we're currently doing. And that, is, that requires the teacher to say, actually, this, of this activity I'm doing, this is the one bit which has value digitally. And the rest, actually, we don't need it. Because what we know is the moment you open up your screens, I've lost them. I've lost half the kids and two others. They're distracted. So you get an opportunity lost by opening screens. So you have to, I would say, you be careful when you open it and then do something really good when you're there. So there's ways I try and get my teachers and training to critically evaluate digital at all times so that when they use it, it's used well, otherwise don't. Because it can enhance learning and it's great, fabulous communication and it's fun and it's visual and there's heaps of stuff there. It's not that we put our heads in a hole in the ground and pretend it's not good but we just still critically evaluate what it can and can't do for us as a way of operating and using it wisely. So in most schools in New Zealand, most are BYOD. But the research now shows that the ones who are using it to the most extreme are doing most poorly in their educational outcomes now. And the ones who use it more moderately and carefully are doing better. The ones who don't have it at all are doing worse, but that probably reflects the starting point of where they were in the first place of an economic kind of basis. So, yeah we've got to keep hitting that middle spot again.
0: You mentioned falling rates of literacy and numeracy. Mm. Do you see that connected to this use of digital technology as well?
2: Almost exclusively, but not entirely. A couple of things going on. One has been the big culture wars and learning literacy between the two. It happens in maths as well. whole language, we don't teach them ABCs. They just kind of absorb by reading so many books and understanding about words and how they happen, but you don't need to teach phonics. And then the other extreme is they will learn their ABCs and then they can put together, you know, B-E-D, bed, B-E-D, you know, like, and because they have the basics. What we probably need is that kids need multiple ways to access good literacy and probably something in the middle that's fun and engaging and very enriched by disciplinary areas so you can learn literacy through science and through social studies and not just in your one little class in English where you do something on grammar, but actually infuse it with really good learning for life. Those culture wars had played out to extremes in New Zealand classrooms and New Zealand schools with people adopting these positions and then shouting at each other for not having the same position. And the same in maths with learning, you would have probably done the numeracy project where they told you, you know, 357 plus 68 is approximately, what would it approximately be? And so you get that whole language stuff going. But they will never teach you the strategy of how to carry the one. So that went on in New Zealand to absolutely disastrous results. And I think PISA 2015, and they pulled it almost overnight. What is PISA? The Programme for International Student Achievement, run by the OECD, that compares country attainment and then ranks them. It's got its own weaknesses. It's a two-hour test for 15-year-olds. But at the same time, it does give us some patterns because it's done every three years. So that one, they almost overnight pulled the whole numeracy project because the kids, they were never given a strategy of how to do what we'd call long-short multiplication, which is what I still do. If you gave me that quiz, I'd I'd write it down and I'd carry the one and I'd be able to do it meticulously. But I couldn't jump in and give you the approximate number like they encourage kids today. Um, So there's good things in both, but we needed to probably bring them together and give kids, once again, both strategies rather than polarize into these cultural wars so that's been happening in the background and then digital on top of that so basically the average age most screen most websites aim at is about a 12 year old and so what what has happened over time is kids are exposed to less and less complex language for sure you're reading online but you're not reading to the same complexity as most books because they've dumped it down a bit to get everyone on board And so that fall in the ability to deal with complex language has happened incrementally very, very noticeably in New Zealand. And so we have studies like if you survey kids in New Zealand today, most 15 to 18 year old boys, 18 year old boys would hardly read one book a year. That would be the norm. And that's across New Zealand. Yeah. So for sure they're reading on digital, but what we also know is that you tend to go to the websites where it's easier if your literacy is lower. So once again, the digital ride creeps in even within access to devices with people not being exposed to the more complex language and complex ideas. Yeah, and then on top of that, we've had the narrative of the 21st century learner who then the teachers are like, I better not interfere with their learning. And they've just taken a really big back seat instead of being in charge of the classroom and guiding the combination of all that has led to where we're at now. Probably a few other things thrown in there, like open playing classrooms and a whole lot of other things.
1: Is education in New Zealand sort of uniquely prone to swings. fads and swings and things? Yeah. So you talk about the new project. It seems like it hasn't done a good job. But Why was, it, was it sort of piloted and tested and, you know, look at the results and then, oh, yes, we should roll that out further?
2: Yeah, no. So almost nothing of our policy changes come from evidence. So. New Zealand is very prone to seize an idea and then go to an extreme on it. And I'm writing a paper now on the pendulum swings of curriculum. We aren't the only one, because even England went down the student-led progressive idea and then did a massive swing to the the most prescribed education you could ever imagine. Down to like I've seen their textbooks, the geography textbooks. You know, you will learn about bays, and then you will learn about how stacks are formed and how glaciers are formed, and each is either in time of the year, you will learn this. So we're not like that in New Zealand. And we would think that's way an extreme prescription that we don't want because we'd say we need people to engage with the learners in front of them and change it and adapt it to them. So in the meantime, the pendulum swings have happened far too many times in New Zealand. There's this educational research on small nation states, which New Zealand isn't quite, not like a Pacific Island, a small nation state, but ideas flow quicker in smaller nations. And so change happens quicker. That's an educational theory that I think has been well proven. And the smaller nation states are more inclined to take on new ideas than the big ones, because change just takes so long to happen. We we are often used as a kind of guinea pig for like if plus New Zealand was the guinea pig for the world.
0: I was wondering with the school system having all these different issues and sort of on like a systemic level, and then also in the classroom, what does homeschooling or Mm different variations of homeschooling, like natural learning or unschooling, what did those look like in comparison to that? And, and mm. how are they different? Is one better than the other? Interesting
2: question. So what tends to happen is that the homeschool is only as good as the parents' knowledge of education. And so then we can get really, really variable experiences of that. So... Because it's primarily the mother or one of the parents teaching, their knowledge of maths is directly involved in what the student then gets to know. And so you can buy in resources to supplement that, but it can be limiting. And so most people agree that by the time you need a specialist teacher, probably about the age of 14, homeschooling will get you nowhere near as a specialist teacher. As most parents, me included, I can teach the best social science in the world, but I cannot teach my maths and chemistry and physics to the level that a specialist teacher can. So there are some things to consider there. In terms of the unschooling movement, which is very popular, we look at this a lot in education. I do whole lectures on alternative education, and there's a lot of really nice ideals that a child will learn at their own pace and at their own interests, and Te preschool curriculum is based on this. And so it's quite beautiful because you follow the interests of the child and you support them. Ah, you're practising what floats in water. Let's run and get a few more things. What floats in water? Why do things float? And you just follow their interests. It's beautiful. But the trouble is to scale that up without someone who has expertise is you just get these huge inequalities growing within that. So in general, learning at school moderates some of those extremes because... You don't have the expert parent here or or the right conditions here. So, but, yeah, there's something very appealing about getting rid of schools and just doing it all organically. But I myself can't quite tolerate that at a level of a national education system because it, it just presents too many opportunities for inequalities to grow.
1: I have such a... Um internal tension about this because our family was involved with play center mm. and it yeah. was it was like that and when i look at mm. the children that when they were small they would do they would mm. be little scientists and explore things mm. and it's lovely, in yeah. my own life most i feel like in recent years mm. or my in my working life there's been heaps of exploration and learning and, and that kind of self-directed way mm. but somehow there's this big bit in the middle of of educational institutions where it doesn't seem like it actually makes sense to apply that stuff to the educational institutions but i don't know how to marry the two The yeah. tension there
2: a good teacher can do it so the kind of social action projects I've been talking about earlier, to me that's that's great learning. You have a good teacher, you have a lot of freedom, but you've got enough structure to keep everyone on on a decent track without people just falling behind so badly, potentially. Yeah, it is hard. And I was involved in Play Center and it's so wonderful to have parents involved in education. And I would if I had to design education system, that would be one of my keys for success because what we know is if you don't support learning at home the gaps grow within schools as well if schools have to do the only job but if parents are constantly enriching through just oral culture through experiences through curiosity through taking kids to libraries you miss a lot as well so parental involvement I'd love to see more of particularly in secondary you just don't even get an opportunity as a parent to connect at all Occasional parent teacher interview, and that's it. And you otherwise you'd never ever really get into school and find out what's happening. So, some really good schools are trying to break that down. And in South Auckland, there's a school called Macaulay College that has open nights for doing maths education for parents. Parents come in, and study the same maths as the kids, so they can ask intelligent questions. And okay, now we're going to do a reading night for parents. These are the books which might be really cool for your kids, and that kind of thing. And
1: how is that resource? Presumably, the schools are not. Funded to deliver no, learning to the parents?
2: Not at all. But that would be, in this case, a Catholic school with a little bit of creative funding and passionately believing that the parents need to be in and out of the doors a lot more. But that takes a lot of extra energy. And that school, I know, found some creative funds. So they have a dental unit for free for every kid on site. They have specialist nurses coming in and that kind of thing. But they've had very creative use of funds to do that and to the benefit of the kids. So that's a DSL 1 school performing like a Dessal 8 school now because of that. And the kids are held voluntarily till five o'clock every day to do some catch up after school as well. And the teachers then give their time after school even more. So it's quite a model, but built on Catholic values of care. It's quite interesting. If you were
1: the Minister of Education, what would you do to reverse? You've if, if identified a few different patterns, including the PISA scores and the mm-hmm. digital stuff and the maths and the literacy. What would you do? Do you have a plan? Yes, if
2: overnight I'd get rid of NCA because I just think it's not working. At a system level, it has failed us for so many years now, and I'm not quite sure if it's fixable or not. There's one last try happening now, which I'm involved in. But after that try, I think it's gone, if it doesn't work. Because it introduced us, once again, this idea of freedom of choice, but to the detriment of naming that anything at all mattered. And so we have these kids emerging from school with just no pathways, but lots of credits. And it's at a system level we just don't know what to do with that because they haven't been educated in the true sense of an education that would set you up for a future. They have nothing, nowhere to go with the credits that they've eclectically gathered by mostly avoiding anything difficult. So that one I find a hugely problematic assessment system and no one else in the world does it. We are trying to fix it one more time and I think it's worth one more go and that's by making larger standards with more required knowledge within them. But even now the schools are saying, how dare you tell us what to do? How dare you make us fail, kids? We've never failed. We have to have success. And the parents are like, why are you failing my kid? All their siblings passed everything. You know, how dare you bring in failure? And yet, if we have slightly more difficult standards, there will be more failure. And at the same time, we've got kids leaving school en masse because there's jobs. You can get thousands of jobs right now, almost unskilled. And it's mostly in hospitality and retail and service industries on minimum wage. But you can right now get $30 an hour for cleaning hotels in Queenstown. So why would you need a harder achievement standard? So it's this kind of tension that we're fighting for change to enrich that form of assessment, which largely is working for social sciences, but completely failing the STEM subjects from what our research is showing.
1: So we're ditching NCEA? Yep. Anything else?
2: Bob. give it one last chance, but then ditch it. So I would put in place a massive professional development program for teachers that was centralised and funded with expert advisors. So we had this in place about 15 years ago where every university had like an advisor in maths, advisor in social science, and they were in charge of creating the professional development and being in schools all the time, measuring research, working with teachers, what's working, what's not. So that research alongside professional development has been completely lost in the name of a project called Kahui Ako, or Communities of Learning, where schools are encouraged to join up with their primary school and secondary school and develop some continuity there. So that was in itself a nice idea, but then they weren't told what mattered to work on, so they can do anything they want but no sense of how to gather data, what data is meaningful, what is actually bringing about changes in outcomes of kids. So it's almost having no incremental difference in student outcomes. That's come in since Heke Parata, maybe 2011, that maybe a little bit later, are just really boost up professional development for teachers because in the end, teachers make the most difference, like not digital devices, it's teachers that make the most difference in the classroom. And they need to be celebrated, placed right back in centre stage instead of marginalised out the back as a facilitator, and encouraged and taught what are good research-led ways of teaching, of actually shifting outcomes, because we have some of the greatest inequalities in the world, in our schools, and even within our classrooms. So that inequality problem, it's just so hard to fix, and it's no one silver bullet, but the best thing you could do is equip really good teachers to know what they're doing. Yeah, and I'd get the universities far more involved in schooling in terms of that flow through of research and ideas, instead of we. We're not encouraged, we do all the time, but we're not encouraged to interact with them in any form. And I would put out a bit more data about when not to use digital devices and how to use them and to encourage a healthy scepticism of digital devices at all times because the teacher is what makes the most difference, not the device, and then loads of outdoor education.
0: <laughs> in terms of scrapping NCA,
2: mm-hmm. is there
0: something that you think that could be replaced with?
2: That, that's really hard because we don't actually have that many good models and when my son says to me be careful mum when you say this because he studied in Germany and they have the Abitur and it's really scary he said you don't want to wish that on kids really where you work for two years and you sit some exams and many fail and that's terrifying and that's all you've got as you leave school so I don't think that's the model I think there probably is something a little bit in between of a I don't know 40% externally assessed component and a 60% internally assessed and then make that work according to your discipline, that would be worth trying. But it is hard to put together because, yeah, at the moment it's too loose, but we also have to be careful that we don't incriminate kids by making it too difficult for them. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. hard.
0: Yeah. And you're doing a bit of work on the NCA history curriculum at the moment. Uh, yeah,
2: right. social studies, like actually. actually. Yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I actually don't, within my subject of social studies, NCA isn't isn't horrible Because we had things like social action and really cool research projects and so there's some stuff which works quite well and the new review does suggest that 50% of all the assessment will now be externally assessed and 50% internally and that takes some of that incredible assessment load off teachers. So if you're married to a teacher you know how much they mark, particularly English teachers and this would then mean that it goes to external panels instead of the teaching to do that. So some of that's really good because teachers have been completely overworked. No other country in the world has three years of high stakes assessment like we have. They mostly just have, say, one and then a two year gap for the last two, or they just have the end year. And so we really work our teachers hard with that amount of assessment. So being involved in that has some promise. But what I'm really worried about is that we need what's called cultural change in a school to go alongside the suggested proposed assessment changes so that the idea that things are more difficult becomes more normal. And I don't see that happening anywhere. It's, it's not going down that well at the moment.
1: I'm quite keen to get on to, to university at some point, but, oh, yeah. but I have one or two more questions. Partly it's from a conversation that's very in out in our house about streaming. My wife teaches in a, a school that has streaming, and she mm. teaches at the moment a, a, a top stream and a bottom stream year 12 mm. class, and we're always talking about it because mm. it's such a stark difference. The, the top stream is just able to produce creative writing of a, of a sort that I could not manage, yeah. whereas the bottom stream is, is basically not literate and, and cannot string sentences together, yeah. doesn't know what a verb is, and, and there's a kind of level, I guess, mm. she's teaching what should have happened at primary school. Yeah. And the move is, of course, to, to jam it all together. Yeah, and and, and because of the, I guess, I gather there are, there are is there evidence to show it's better in general for, mm. to not stream.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's a really big dilemma. And what nobody takes into account is how difficult it is for a teacher to have those two groups sitting within the one classroom. It's astronomically difficult for a teacher to meet the needs of those. So when I was in Sweden, Norway, so I've spent a bit of time over there for research and talking a lot with teachers and even with parents over there. What happens there is that there is no streaming. And in New Zealand, um, streaming works incredibly well for the middle class. And if you have bright kids, and I did, they get really bored with the level of the pace of the classroom a lot. So that means the middle class parents often come back to put pressure on the school to say, my child is bored silly. Could you at least give him something that made his brain tickle because he comes home day after day without any kind of incremental thinking or learning going on? So the middle class have been very good at saying, build the gifted and talented, build the streaming, because my child will really benefit from it. And it's true, they will. And that's partly why what happens in Norway and Sweden is you knock off that top end, but you pull up the bottom and more kids in the middle, by and large, achieve at a mediocre level. But you've cut off the potential of that top end. So we have a lot more Rhodes Scholars than Norway. You know, we have that that top end. Is, literally. Do we? Literally. Yeah. Because they actually don't even encourage it. And they give the logic of the common good to all students. Yep. You're good at maths. Go and help the others. That's your job. So I had a friend who had a child like that. Yep. Go and tell Elin to go and help all the others in the class because she's good at maths. So it's her job to support the others. And it's a very strong theme in Scandinavia, which is quite interesting. Whereas we have that autonomous individual that rises better than the rest that we encourage a lot through our model so the critique of streaming has some merit but the reality of putting everyone in the same classroom is so difficult for a teacher that I know exactly why schools stream because I've taught those mixability classes and you know you almost do no one a service in them so the bottom kids you can't do well because you can't do that wraparound care the top kids are bored silly you're coping with their like i finished miss i finished Okay, okay, what could we do now? We'll give you more work. Well, why should I do more work if they're not working? Okay, so, uh, okay, you could do enriched work. You could do that paragraph again, but with far more flair. And you know, you, that's what you're dealing with as a teacher. And it's so hard. And all the critique of streaming is not dealing with that problem. So I know we do whole lessons on how to differentiate learning for multiple needs of learners within one class. But the reality is it's really hard and you have to be super organized and you have to get some buy in from the group that are really agitating at the top end to not be slowed down and to give us more and then to somehow wrap around care for the group, which you're still not quite doing well for because they they're so far behind. So it's kind of idealistic and I would far rather instead of just that holistic critique of streaming going on saying okay show me what a mixed ability classroom looks like when everyone's flying show me what that would look like because that's where the research is needed mm, the critique of streaming is anyone can make it
1: it's a very interesting this, this point about scandinavia that mm. there's a maybe a whole of society vision of how how do we want to be together yep. that that maybe there's a conversation that needs to be had in new zealand yep. about that
2: a sense of common it's com- a common social contract where Everyone is valued and we don't leave people behind. I think that is a bigger cultural shift. We've inherited a very strong, individualistic, high pursuits-rewarded culture, mostly from our British schooling traditions that we just brought directly over, along with the uniforms. Yeah, we inherited all that. And that competitive edge where you celebrate the really smart kids. and, And I also don't want to not celebrate those kids because I actually hate schools where you don't celebrate success of all kinds. And there's schools in New Zealand where to be academically successful is really, really looked down on. It. And I just think that's a tragedy. We need to celebrate excellence. We don't dumb it down. We celebrate sport. We celebrate culture. but And we don't need to play them off each other. We need all those people in society. We don't need to undermine those that do well.
1: I'm interested in the university. I'm interested in what's changed over the time you've been teaching in university. What's the experience been like? How's it changed?
2: Yep. So I started teaching 2011. So we're now up to 11 years. That was my first job here. What I feel is an incremental increase in scale and pace of workload. Even classes I had that I knew every student by name, the courses are now probably tripled in size. It's partly to do with restructuring of how the courses are run and the university becoming far more interested in me teaching more students all at once instead of having the smaller classrooms, which we used to celebrate a lot. So I feel my workload has probably doubled in that time from what the expectation was in 2011 till now, of the actual physical hours I teach. And then on top of that, the increased digital presence in classrooms. So I didn't used to even, I always was able to put up lecture slides, but I used to do it after the lecture so that they'd come to the lecture and take the notes and then just have that as a backup, which is now very unpopular. And then the expectations of being able to contact me have changed just grown and grown. So I have a little graph of how many emails I get a year from students. I separate them out. And even in the last two years they've grown by a third. Hey Brahman, could you help me with this? And this along with the communication increase has become the increase in need. So what we know from university data is probably from 2014, 2014 is a particularly pivotal year where we started to see a really big decline in quality coming through from schools, and it's linked to the better public service targets that were happening in NCA and so on, but also the mental health. So there's stats within the university of the request for counselling and for support that would have tripled about 2014, between 2014 and about 2018, and then it's just gone through the roof so that no service can keep up. And so that need then hits like almost like an assault as a lecturer who cares a lot of need. That need just weighs on me so much as I'm teaching now. And for sure it was there from a handful of kids way back in 2011. But now it's like a a third of students of this kind of deadening kind of weight of anxiety, depression, trauma, just stuff happening that's just so big. And it's quite overwhelming, actually. And I sometimes... I try so hard to be fair, to be open, to be compassionate, at the same time as getting occasionally really wild with just that sense of entitlement to ask for so many things. Like That has been very, very difficult in recent years to cope with that need, knowing that I just can't do it. Um, And my biggest way of coping is to create highly relational spaces and through COVID that's been greatly jeopardised. And so some of what I would normally mop up in terms of quick check-ins with kids and how are you going this week and whatever that I just can't do on zoom nothing can make up for that embodied relational interaction that occurs mostly what what I did in the tutorial so what I'd do is the tutorials are normally about 20 I'd make mine 30 or 35 because there's just the students I need in my tutorial and I just put them all in because I know they need it anyone that just had any inkling that yep yeah, you're in my tutorial and then that Kind of get to know them by name, get to know their backgrounds, where you're from, who is your teachers. I know most schools around New Zealand, so there's always like, oh, do you know this teacher? And all of that in relationship stuff, which I absolutely thrive on, and so do they, has been hollowed out in recent years. And then the expectations on me to deliver not just the lecture, but to record it and to have a surrounding it and a whole lot more snappy kind of things to get them engaged and that kind of thing. At the same time, is eroding my one chance to do that. My greatest potential to do that, which was in a physical classroom. So, yeah, I don't think it's looking good for the future because I think that the university will say we have to continue with this. Maybe not quite jewel delivery, but everything will be recorded. Students can live away from Wellington. We have to recruit them, even if they live in New Plymouth. We just have to keep the numbers for the money. So I don't think my critique, which is now really, really hard evidence to show that this is resulting in declined performance, lack of engagement, higher failure, they're not interested because it's bums on seats. But maybe at some stage the loss of students at stage two and stuff will start to talk because actually that's also bums on seats for the next year and maybe we do need to do something to get them back onto campus so that we can keep them. So maybe at some stage that conversation can be held, but it's certainly not particularly open right now. Mm.
1: Sounds like a very difficult situation to work under.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's exhausting. And I almost beside myself the last term where I was teaching four courses, just almost impossible. with that load yeah at the same time there's still moments of joy and no moment more joyful than in the classroom chatting with kids throwing around ideas really challenging thinking and you know thinking through these biggest issues in education and how we can fix them and I love it you know the student that comes up at the end and says I never realized that my success was linked to my privileged background but now that theory that you introduced helped me really see that and it's like those moments are just like gold because you know you taught well that you've encouraged criticality that you've she's then done the work of looking at herself and then she never missed a class because it was that transformative you know like transformative in the mind perhaps not in society but transformative of her thinking so yeah and I keep in touch with those students for life they're still emailing can you be my referee can you I'm coming back to study would you supervise me you know those yeah I I tap students on the the shoulder and say I think you'd be good to do postgraduate come back and see me and they do it's really fun.
0: We've had a conversation in the past about single sex schools yeah. and co ed schools. And where I'm from in Nelson, there's sort of two big single sex schools mm. which have had, over the past few years, massive declining roles because everyone's mm. going to the co ed school and it's now been zoned because
2: the co ed school's been zoned,
0: yeah, because oh. too many people it didn't have, used to be that way around. It's, it used to be the other way around. What are your thoughts on? single sex and co-ed education in New Zealand at the moment and do you see benefits or downsides of either model?
2: I'm surprisingly not that critical of single sex and I think we had this conversation I actually think it really works well for some kids it has potential so the reason it's there just to explain is we inherited it from England and then historically the first school in every town was a boys school. Followed by equivalent sister school emerging for the yeah. middle class, so that's important to note because other countries never did the single sex. So all through Europe, you'll hardly find a single sex school. It's a really odd idea to them. Yeah,
0: yeah, we yeah. had that in Germany. I don't think there mm. are very many. But in Nelson, there's Nelson College yeah. and then Nelson College for girls because yeah. the single sex boys' school was has Even been there. around for like twenty or forty years longer.
2: And they got the name even, yeah. Nelson College, without even adding boys on. Yeah, so that's the same here, Wellington, Auckland, everywhere, mm. um, Palmerston North. But it's not all bad, and I, I have seen some really cool stuff happening within single-sex schools, and partly because you take away that, I don't even think of it so much as distraction, but you take away the kind of gendered roles of expectation in some ways. So in a really weird way, in some of the boys' schools, I find less gendered roles happening than in the co-eds. That might be really hard to hear. But because when there's boys and girls in the class, they'll often do, the girls will do this, the boys will do this. Whereas in a single-sex school, you'll often say, actually, everything's up for grabs. There's a bit more freedom there. I mean, it is slightly odd to remove people by their gender from society and place them in a bubble like that. That is slightly odd. But the results aren't all bad. So the results show that for most kids up to year 11, single-sex schools will actually take you generally further than co-ed in terms of academic output, from about year 12 upwards is no difference. So that's why something like Scots and King's College, I think I'm right on this, bring in the girls about year either 11, 12 and 13. There's quite strong evidence for that. So there's something about, for example, girls doing PE without boys being there is quite different. And in some co-ed schools, they separate them for that reason because the girls will actually throw further, run faster without the boys there Because I don't. It's that stigma. You're not good at throwing, you're not good at running. So then they'll play to that. In a girls' school, they often won't play to it. More girls are doing science in girls' schools than in co ed schools because the gender roles happen. So, can you see why it's not an entirely bad thing?
0: So, it would ideally be like co ed, sort of preschool, primary school, intermediate school. And then when you get to year 11, single sex, and then back in for the.
2: Yeah, possibly. There there is a school that trialed that, um, Mount Talbot Grammar School. And they, I believe, Year 9 and 10 have single-sex classrooms and then put them back a bit later, but that's within the same school. So they're mixing and mingling all the time. But you'll learn your science with all girls and with all boys. Right. So quite intriguing. I mean, that's a kind of social experiment. The biggest difference actually is the teacher. <laughs> so you can put kids in a garage. You can, you know, mix them up, gender and stuff like that. But the biggest difference is the teacher and whether they're a good teacher. That is actually what matters. And that's why we really, really need to equip our teachers well to be the best they can because they do make the biggest difference in the world yeah. for those for those kids. And a weak teacher, huge damage to kids.
0: My history teacher is the reason that I'm doing history degree mm. at university, so I definitely yeah. Yeah, see yeah, that
2: as well. Exactly, yeah, you just, a couple of really good teachers change the world. So, yeah, surprisingly not, not too hot under the collar about single-sex schools, yeah. yeah. And even I had someone come and ask me about transgender kids and they should... Every school needs to be co-ed so that they can cope with that. And actually, some of the single-sex schools are doing really well with that. And it wasn't such a big deal as this student who came and said he's going to do his whole thesis on it. And I rolled my eyes and said, that's not worth doing a thesis on. Kind of like, single-sex schools can do this well as well. And in fact, some of the transgender kids have chosen to remain in single-sex schools because they feel more comfortable there than the co-ed taught one this year, who remained in his single-sex girls' school because he felt more comfortable there than moving out
1: to a co-ed. You mentioned earlier about liberation theology, and I was sort of he- okay. hearing a little bit of what you were talking about earlier as well. Do you want to talk more about what's important to you about liberation theology, who, who should be read? You
0: know?
2: Yeah. so we have some theorists within schooling. Most of the theorists I follow would be within the tradition of what we call critical theory, So they're mostly critiquing power structures in society and trying to put in place practices and opportunities for those who are marginalised in some way to have voice or to participate. So that's broadly what critical theory is. And within education, there's a group of theorists interested in critical pedagogy. How could we teach in a way that actually helps students to understand the hierarchies and power systems in society and actually then infuse them with the ability to speak back to them? So the person who led the charge on this, the so-called father of critical pedagogy, is Paulo Freire, a Brazilian theorist. And at that time, when he was operating around about 1950s, 1960s, in Brazil, there was a bunch of theologians who are characterized by the term liberation theology, came out of Brazil and South America, that used the language of marginalization and the oppressed to be the way to infuse a theology of care and also emancipation of those groups. So they did it within the churches, the Catholic Church led this and In fact, there was a lot of trouble in Brazil about around 1964 to about 1986. And Paulo Freire was thrown out along with others because they radically critiqued the government of the time. And the Catholic Church led that through their ideas of liberation theology of caring for the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor. One of the reasons I'm really attracted to it is that those ideas through Paulo Freire were then brought back into the classroom, and his argument is, how does the education system serve the oppressed? And it came from his deep sense of justice, his Catholic theology, and infused with the ideas of critical theory, which was coming in from Europe. Uh, Adorno and Horkheimer and others like that were, were the main theorists. So he put that together into a critical pedagogy for the oppressed and infused by that liberation theory. So what it means to me is a strong, strong commitment to both understanding and interrogating how power operates in society in order that the poor are created, the oppressed are created. And his use of the term oppressed is quite a useful one because it can include multiple categories of oppression. So it could be gender, race, class and beyond, but he doesn't name it. So he doesn't have a critical theory of race. He doesn't have a critical theory of gender. It's a commitment to the oppressed. So it's both to understand why is it that the peasants are poor, why are they are literate, becomes a really important question because if you can't understand the why, then you may as well not learn to read. And his argument, you have to both read the world and read the word and that reading the world is understanding the deep hierarchies of power which operate and how they perpetuate year after year. And if you read the word... It will give you a chance to speak back to that and to understand it more deeply. So he had a very inherent commitment to literacy.
1: When you say the word, is that talking about the Bible or what's the word?
2: No, in this case, the word would be the generic idea of reading and writing. And the Bible would be probably one of those, but not named as such. So just learning your literacy gives you a criticality that without that, you can't speak back to power. And you can't transform society until you actually basically can read. And he'd work with these peasants in back blocks. So the reason he got so famous is he was a nobody in Brazil, but he had a fascination with literacy. And then he went to the poorest regions and he'd work with groups about, I don't know, 20 peasants. And they'd come through after work and he would start, he'd have big visuals like drawings and photos and things like this and not a lot of words there. And he'd say, let's just form a circle, always a circle. How was your day? Who got paid today? Why did you only get that much? Who's getting who's getting paid? And you start this criticality of society. Well, you know, why are you only getting paid that much? Why does the boss get paid that much? And how does this work? And then he'll introduce the words and introduce another word and keep talking. And so it's always about you start, it's called genitive themes. You start from the point of contact with people's own lives and you build from there their literacy. And in 45 days, he could train peasants who were illiterate to read completely because of this style of literacy teaching that was so effective but but then he was also viewed as so radical because then they'd go to their bosses and say we can read our employment slips now you're you're undercutting us here and so he was so threatening he was thrown out of the country he was just so so radical and the book i just love this book the pedagogy of the oppressed has been smuggled all around the world in quiet places like in apartheid south africa it was the book of revolution because all it held were these simple truths, you know, learn to critique, learn to read, and learn to speak back to society. But it was so dangerous. So, yeah, that appeals.
1: And how does that connect with contemporary New Zealand structures in life? May
2: yeah. I... There's this hilarious story in 1974 He was brought out by the Anglican Church, and Paulo Freire was the keynote speaker.
1: And it was... To New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, really?
2: Yeah, he even came to Victoria. And I've got this in Salient. I found an an article on him that I show the students now. One of the students found it for me one year. And this year I had a student whose mother attended the lecture at Victoria and told me. Anyway, what happened is the Anglican Church and Auckland University brought him out to a seminar. And they brought him into the room. And I think I told you this through. Popped him up in the front chair. Here's our special guest. And then someone got up the front to announce. And here's Paulo Freire, all the way from Brazil, to talk to us. And then he just refused to get up. This went on for hours and he just smoked a cigarette. And um, finally, finally, he stood up and addressed the crowd because you know, people were getting pretty mad. We've paid you to come this far. And, and then he turned to them and said, I don't know why you've brought me here. I want to work with the oppressed. And when I look around, I can't see the oppressed. You are your own problem. When you're ready to talk to me about, you, when you are ready to identify what your issues are and how you're going to solve them, you can come and talk to me because I won't be bought. My idea is there's not one size fits all. You need to generate them for yourselves. And he's particularly talking about Māori. So what that did, there was a few Māori in the room like Hone Ka and others who have become very instrumental in Kōpākā Māori for the whole of New Zealand because they were in the university. The message basically was you say you've got problems here, you haven't even got the right people in the room, get the right people in the room and start working on your own problems and I'll come in and help you. So it was very, very powerful. And it actually, I think, triggered a massive movement th- through the Anglican Church. I'm not sure the timing of the Anglican prayer book and stuff in Māori, but, but that kind of movement was generated a lot by that experience. So in terms of contemporary education, I think he still has a huge voice to offer in terms of that critique of where they're pressed, who is actually involved in solving the issues and are they the right people and who is caring about that incredible gulf and inequalities happening right now in New Zealand because that surely is one of the biggest issues facing society if you have those inequalities sitting within so yeah still very very powerful and the answers the hope the critical hope is relationality so above all else viewing each other in relationship as opposed to climbing up each other to see who goes the furthest and viewing everyone in the room with the potential to solve the problems instead of designating some. These kind of deep philosophies are still incredibly pertinent today and reducing the power structures, which just don't help one bit about who gets the most voice and who has the most power in all of this. There's very simple messages from this uh, theory.
1: sounds like you might rearrange the university quite profoundly and the school system
2: yeah I think you would and I think it also doesn't mean you let anything go because I I hate that most people think okay so we need to let the children take over and they can just rule it all that's actually no it's a deep relationship of adults and young people together that creates the greatest potential for change and for education but you don't take the adults out of that because I come to school uh, and the narrative of the past 20 years has been let the children just rule their own learning. They can have access to the internet. Why do they need a teacher? And that narrative is really thin and not taking us far. And it's not intergenerational. It's not relational. And we can't, as a society, move forward with that kind of, yeah, there's a a worrying voice right now in society of young people who want to completely overthrow every institution in the name of being young and critical. Actually, it won't bring about the type of change we need. You can tear the institutions down, but actually it's only when we work together, old and young, rich and poor, that we can truly bring about change. And I don't think just by shouting that, you know, white males are in control and exposing that is the answer for actual deep change in society. We need much more to be in relationship with those that we want to change for that, for true change to happen, I think.
0: Do you see any hopeful trends towards this relationality and towards some of these relationships?
2: Well, I think the generation today crave community above almost anything else, but they don't know how to find it and don't know how to create it particularly well. I've seen it. I've seen like I went to a startup. It sounds a bit of a silly thing, but it's a startup of young people who were setting up an app for volunteering in Wellington, and I was an advisor for whatever reason and invited to it. And I walked in this room and thought they found something. They really have found something. There's a deep commitment to each other. There's a joy. They're heading in with purpose. They're loving being together. You could just feel it in the room and you can walk into environments like that. And people want that. They desperately want it. And it feels fantastic to be working with others on a project, heading in a direction with purpose, making a difference, bringing in others, you know, like, so I think there is hope because I think people know that that's what they want but we've almost forgotten over COVID what it's like to truly live in embodied relational space together with others. That kind of like pulling back out of public space, out of churches, is just everywhere at the moment, and finding solace with your screen watching stuff. People know that's thin, and it doesn't take me as a Christian to tell them that's thin. They know that's a very thin existence. And they, at the end of the day, you know that that latest Netflix or that latest update on some social media site actually doesn't give you that deep fulfillment they know that but I think almost lost the ability to put in, in and something that would invigorate the type of thing that people are looking for but I think it's deeply sought now at a very primal level
1: it sounds like you're saying universities at the moment or at least this one maybe is having a difficult time creating spaces where this kind of thing can happen really naturally yeah. that, that you really have to fight for it
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I've got two examples that just stand out because it's just it's just so different than the norm. There's a group of us, mostly early childhood teachers, that just do craft together, and we meet. We were meeting weekly, but it's a little bit less often than that. And, man, when we get together and we just paint stones or we did a screen printing workshop in the ilk of Robin White recently and just so much joy. We can talk, relate, eat, create. The joy that gives me is is I realised when the, you know, it'll be the highlight of my whole week, that little hour together, because of that sense of creation together. And you can talk and critique whatever you want, but there's a sense of commitment to each other and to creative space. Um, and the other one I went to recently, which I found really joyful, just surprised me how much, was the sustainability group in Victoria University had a growing microgreen session, just for open to any staff and Sustainability Week or something. So we went on, just a bunch of people that didn't know each other and all together just planted seeds and with a really fun person. By the end of it, you know, I'd, I was talking about exchanging seed packages with the woman beside me and because you only need a few seeds to grow a lot of microgreens, and then you just go home and watch this thing grow and it's like we were using like old recycled containers, recycled paper, bits of soil that we found. Everything was just really, really low, low impact and night and sustainable, just a, t- a few tiny seeds. And then the joy it's given my whole household is we snip off the little microgreens every night, put them on our salads and stuff like that. And that uh, just occurred to me, man, that just small moment, moment of interaction, doing something that was creative, something that growed, and that's what gives life. You go home happy because you've connected, you've done something valuable. It was tiny, absolutely tiny, but the joy it gave. We also had a, a group Zoom in from Australia. This is the Joy of Digital. So a group from Queensland were part of our microgreens because they were learning as well about how to do it. And there was fun. It was just completely done in a blended way, completely naturally. We were having more fun than them. That was quite obvious. But the point was they could be there if they wanted. It surprised me how much joy that gave me and others, that tiny one hour of our day of interacting around something positive and something good.
1: And in person sounds like it was key.
2: Absolutely. Physically walk out with a punnet. Um, But then since I had three. I can hardly eat them, there's so many grown.
0: We also always ask two questions at the end. One is what your most controversial opinion is. So like if you were in in a room with other academics from your field, what's something you reckon that you'd disagree with other people about?
2: Well, I would be one of the most critical of all the academics around me of digital stuff. And it has been quite hard to say that because it's obviously not very trendy. Most would get the critique quite well. But you just have to say it quite carefully without completely undermining. Although more and more people agree now than even two years ago, than even five years ago. Yeah. So the critique has become stronger. So maybe that's not quite so controversial. do for now.
0: <laughs> and we also always are curious as to what books you're reading, if any. Ah.
2: So I just read Tattoos on the Heart by Father Greg Boyle. He's set up, he's a Catholic priest who works in Los Angeles with gangs. And he set up an organization called, I think it's called Homeboys. And man, he's got some good stuff on compassion and walking the talk of what it actually means to stand by people in what he would call in kinship. So I talk about relationality, he, relationality, he talks one step further that you are in kinship with these people. You cannot walk away or pretend that you're the, even the, the servant of them. You're in kinship. You're there for life. And... The work that he does with these really hard-to-meet kids and the, the death rate of them is just incredible. And It's just such a rough end of LA that he worked for the Dolores Mission, which was a church placed right in the heart of the poorest part of LA, mainly Hispanic. Oh, it's just life-giving. So i finished that one and then I'm reading Stolen Focus because I do want to point out that I finish a book because that's a d- distraction otherwise. And then I just read this wonderful book called Na Uru Oro, which is about by Jeff Parks, 1996 on six sites in New Zealand which have remains of the lowland forest of Aotearoa before everything else was cut down. And he goes to these six sites, including like the Hutt Valley, a tiny little lake near Livin, and then just kind of does 250 pages of deep history about why this little site has remained and everything else around it cut down. That book took me probably slowly reading to two months because there's so, so much depth I needed to kind of go into Deeply profound book Ecology and History and Geography of New Zealand Really good book It's for sale I've got big books I I thought I might buy it for present because it's just
0: so much to offer
1: Yeah, that's great Thank you very much for your time, Bob It's It's been really great really appreciate it
0: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for coming along It wasn't too much Not
1: at all, it's very good